The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. Will Alex and Wade have a cute little intro before diving into the topic today? Well, I guess it depends on your definition of cute. Who knows? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Retire With Style. I'm Wade. And I'm Alex. And we're ready to begin a story arc today on the topic of safe withdrawal rates in retirement. Uh, before we get to that, though, Alex, uh, we usually like to do a little bit of chit-chat at the yes, start of each podcast. We do get some feedback from listeners who don't always appreciate that and feel that maybe there is too much chit-chat, more so on your side than my side. But uh, <laughs> I do know you like to, to ask about the weather and so forth. Yeah, so I don't think it's a chit-chat. I, I think the it, we get tons of great comments. We, we, we really do. So that's not the issue. But every once in a while, we get these that are, uh, you know, that, that, that are like a dagger in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> Largely, it's How me. How do you feel that way? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Before yeah. we lose any <laughs> listeners here, let's let's really dig into the matter today. And and so, really, I so enough chit chat here. <laughs> so the we're going to talk about a topic that is important, although maybe not necessarily that important in the grand scheme of things. We have been talking about the funded ratio, which I've increasingly come to view as a better way to approach thinking about retirement planning. And a simple reason for that is because people have expense needs that change over time, not just overall expenses, but how much do they have to take out of the portfolio? So if you're delaying Social Security, you need to spend more from the portfolio before Social Security begins. And, and there's tons of issues like that. And that really limits the usefulness of the quote-unquote safe withdrawal rate discussion. Nonetheless, uh, this is an important topic, and it's something people care about a lot and will debate extensively and have many disagreements about. And it is an area where I kind of made my name as well in terms of talking about some of these issues. And so we're beginning a, a sequence of podcasts on the question of safe withdrawal rates or more generally on how much can you sustainably spend from an investment portfolio in retirement? So and because wait. we're not very good at planning, we don't know how many episodes that will be at the start, but we'll, it'll we'll be work a bunch. our way towards that. It's, There's an 80% chance be. that it's going to be a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, are you saying that this was an area of research interest initially, but we've kind of gone away from it, but we're going to cover it anyways? Is that kind of right. the- <laughs> well, no, more or less? I mean, <laughs> there was the kind of the, the golden age of retirement income research was really ten years ago, and that's when this was a really hot topic. About well, we we've had Bill Bingham's four percent rule, and we'll be talking quite a bit about that because that really is the starting point for any sort of discussion. But uh, you know, the questions are: Is that number too high? Is that number too low? We'll talk about reasons to consider for each of those points. But again, ultimately, it, it's not necessarily a useful way to think about overall retirement spending. It's, 
it's something probably that fits better for more discretionary types of spending of just how much can I spend from my investment portfolio to really enjoy the overall lifestyle, but understanding that no one's going to use a constant distribution from their investment portfolio, yeah, which almost, is one of the things that is assumed. They're almost like mile markers. Uh, I, I will say this from a practical standpoint, as you know, Wade and I are principals at McLean Asset Management. And, you know, there we're actually applying research into practical application. And I, no one really uses all these kind of rules and everything like that that we're going to talk about in practical application to the T. I mean, uh, we're, we'll bring in a few advisors from McLean and, and just ask them that. How does this actually work? And I seriously doubt that I know more than five advisors that even attempt to do anything like this on a year-in, year-out basis with all of their clients. It's just not practical. But it, it serves as, you know, these sort of the 4% rule or the whatever. I mean, I think it's good uh, – it's good for journal journalists to have articles to write about, but I don't know, you know, the practical it, usefulness beyond for, just guardrails yeah. or mile markers, if you will. It's good for calibrating expectations. It's just not yeah. something you can really use in the day-to-day -day management of retirement. But that being the case, <laughs> you know, and, and this is the, we're starting this arc because, you know, we're, we're effectively doing it. It happens to be chapter four on Wade's book and we're kind of going through Wade's <laughs> the book. Planning guide book. Yeah, the retirement <laughs> planning guide book. See, Wade doesn't miss a beat to, to get it in there. But uh, this is largely, if you're really thinking about this and the whole overall reason for the podcast is Retire With Style, is that this is going to be a very relevant strategy for those in the total return approach. For those whose Risa style is the total return approach. And as Wade said, you know, he was talking about discretionary spending. I mean, they would throw in a lot of essential expending where the portfolio is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And so there you have to think about what are strategies to take sustainable withdrawal rates from. We have no mm -hmm. issues with it. Yeah. We, we just, we're just pointing out that the way the research is done, you know, I, I think it does like some practical applicability, but uh, it, it, there are good estimations that, you know, put you in the zip code of what's feasible, what's not. And it is the heart and soul of the total returns approach. And it's especially important for total returns because this question of how much can I spend from investments, since I am trying to fund all my retirement expenses from investments, I really need to have a good handle on that. With some other styles, you're not as dependent on the investment portfolio. The investment portfolio is more for discretionary types of goals. And then you don't have to be as nervous about, well, what is the safe spending rate from the investment portfolio? So it's, it is something, it has applicability to all retirement styles because all retirement styles do include distributions from an investment portfolio. But it has special applicability to the total returns investor in retirement. And that's probably enough of an intro to, to start getting into it. And with this first episode, we're not going to get all the way up to the 4% the rule because there's really a, a more important foundational starting point. And it may give flashbacks to people. If you ever had a business calculator, <laughs> you, kind of, you can remember back to what we're talking about today. Business calculators have a, well, one of the things they can do, there's a row of five buttons where they ask you, you have to... There's five buttons. You have to decide your inputs for four of them, and it solves the other one. How long are we talking about payments lasting? What is the rate of return? How much money do you have at the start? 
how much money do you want to have at the end? And then what is the spending dis- amount that can manage those parameters of making sure the money lasts for as long as necessary to leave the, the goal balance at the end and uh, to make sure you, you know, you have with that rate of return and so forth. And, and, and I think so, people, I think people yeah. do this when they're on spreadsheets, Wade. They get a big old Excel spreadsheet <laughs> and they just put 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, one column of age, one column mm-hmm. of returns, <laughs> one column of expenses. It's effectively what it's doing, but, you know, a calculator mm-hmm. can do all of that in one shot. You know, one of those yeah, HPs. Yeah, the you can track out over time. And then also you could use, in particular, if you're an Excel fan, what we're really talking about today is the PMT function in Excel, which is going to calculate what's the sustainable payment given a return, given a time horizon, given your account balance at the start, given your uh, intended account balance at the end. Uh, and you do have to put a negative sign in Excel, which I think is extra confusing if you want to have money left at the end. Wait, did you just and hear then, that sound? Did you hear that? No, was it people that, stopping? Yeah, it yeah, was the sound of half of the audience just jumping off once you started referencing Excel sheets. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Yeah, that's no, no, but this is but this is the genesis ultimately of the four percent rules. Was just somebody took a spreadsheet, put it all down, and then. Hmm, let me see how this works and started having fun with numbers, if you will. But the, mm-hmm. the the basic building block of that is this. It's it's what Wade said. What's the return? What's the expected return? What's the time horizon? What's the money coming out, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And, and right. And it's so someone might have heard what Alex said and say, wait a second. No, the 4% rule didn't have a fixed rate of return. It accounted for historical market volatility. But it's the same idea of he... As we get into that, he was responding to really a more simple way that people were thinking about spreadsheets was plug in the historical average stock market return, assume that's the the average return you're going to get, calibrate your spending off that, and that can give dramatically high uh, spending numbers that have a very low probability of working out because there is a volatility around the average but we're not yet ready to really dig into that volatility. We are just talking about the, the basics here. Uh, so, I mean, again, it's suppose I have a million dollars at the start of retirement. Suppose I'm willing to spend that down to zero. Suppose I want that to last for 30 years. And then if you're jumping right into things, suppose I want to spend $40,000 a year. Now, that's the, the PMT number that we'd solve for, but we need to know the rate of return. That would be a 1.31% real return. So. 0.0131, we plug that into that PMT formula. Did and you we're just figure that out off the right, top of your head? Right oh, yeah, I've got that in my head. <laughs> no, I know what goes into the 4%. <laughs> but a 1.31%, and that would be a real return. And this is a, a detail, too, that if the, the payment's going to grow with inflation, you're talking about real returns. If you just want the payment to stay level, not growing with inflation, then you can talk about the the nominal return that adds the inflation component in as well. So a 1.31% real return, maybe with a 2.5% inflation rate, that's getting you up to over 3% in that case. So wait, if you have the basic inputs, and I'm going to speak to the most common denominator sort of audience, just to make sure everyone catches this, because I I think it's very important in terms of what goes into this, because sometimes people just hear the end result and they think it's all Greek to them, right? But effectively, the inputs, 
it's what's the portfolio return for that year, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, how many years are we talking about? The current portfolio value, the desired portfolio value, and when to take distributions. These, these are things that you can take in, into account when creating this. But I have a question intuitively so people can kind of get a sense of this so they don't have to kind of do the math. Uh, and this goes back to uh, how do these variables, individual variables, affect a spending rate? The first one would be obvious, right? If you have a higher return year after year, that means you're going to be able to support a higher spending rate. Mm-hmm. Correct? You want to yeah, follow that and logic? That's actually, yeah, Alex, That this kind of discussion is why it's important to start here because this is really the, the, the heart and soul of a sustainable spending strategy. And then it's just time to debate what's a reasonable rate of return, what's a reasonable longevity, and then then you've got your answers. But right, if we look through these foundational pieces, a higher return assumption, I think, should be pretty clear, supports a higher spending rate. Longevity would would be the other one. How long do you want the money to last? Uh, It's maybe a little bit less obvious, but probably pretty clear as well that the longer you want the money to last, the less you can spend because you have to stretch that asset base out for longer. So a longer retirement uh, planning horizon would then lead to a lower spending rate. Now, all else considered. I, I'll say something here and tie it back to the RISA. This is why the RISA, that's why total return is in the probability-based kind of world, simply because you're comfortable with the probabilities that you know the market will be able to maintain this longer time horizon because you know the, the market will continually go up over time. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the third factor is, do I want money left at the end? The, the 4% rule allows you to spend the portfolio down to zero. So if you're trying to create the 4% rule, you could put in a zero. If you do want money at the end, I mentioned this very briefly, if anyone is listening and starts messing with Excel, this is a very confusing detail. If you want money left at the end, you have to put a negative sign. It's like you're you want to be able to take that out of the portfolio. Uh, if you put if you don't put a negative sign, it means you're willing to kind of go in the hole, which is not intuitive at all. <laughs> so uh, you want money left at the end, and then naturally, the more money I want to have left over at the end, the less I'm going to be able to spend because I have to preserve investments for the purposes of funding that endpoint goal. Okay. And the final factor in Excel, which isn't necessarily super important, but you would need it as an input, is do you want the money to come out at the beginning or end of each time period? And you put in a one to take the money out at the start, a zero to take the money out at the end. Why is that important, Wade? Uh, What what effects do you think that has if I take money out at the beginning versus taking money out? If I take money out in January, at the beginning of January every year versus December? Why, why would that? It'll lead bother? to a, a minor, yeah. It leads to a minor difference in the outcomes because if you have a positive rate of return, which you know hopefully we'll have, uh, the longer you leave the money invested, the uh, the more you can rely on growth. And so, taking out the money at the end of each time period instead of at the beginning of each time period would support a little bit higher spending rate. Okay, you, you let the money grow for a whole extra year before you so, take the distribution. So I'm listening in on this. I have another question. Uh, how how much to leave behind? Let's say I don't necessarily need any to leave anything behind for Wade Jr., but 
I do want to leave myself a cushion just in case. I, I don't feel comfortable taking this to zero or putting zero as my end. What, what should I do? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where there's also some interactions between these variables in terms of if I put the planning horizon out long enough, uh, maybe 110 years old or something, then I probably could put in a zero there. But maybe I'll think about that a little differently where, okay, what if I instead say, let's plan through age 90, but I don't want it to be down to zero at 90. Then I could say, okay, I'll have a shorter planning horizon, but then I still want to have $500,000 left at age 90, for instance. You're making the decision jointly based on both of those factors. How long should the money last and how much should there be at the end? And it's ultimately, I think that's the way to think about it. Like, okay, if I only plan to 90, there's still a pretty good chance I might live beyond 90. But if I plan it so that I have enough safety cushions still available, if that's what makes me comfortable, then that might be the kind of uh, approach I would take. Okay. It, it really, there is flexibility for that. So the, these are the main variables that go into all these studies that, that, that deal with sustainable withdrawal rates? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. the heart and soul of it. It's just we're going to add in volatility eventually because you don't get a fixed market return every year. Yeah. But ultimately, once you add volatility, you start talking about a probability of success. Any probability of success can be mapped into a fixed rate of return assumption that corresponds with that probability. Of what success. does that mean? And so I, I, I just, yeah. what does that mean? And I know we mentioned <laughs> it. Practical terms. Yeah. Cause we talked about it with funded ratio and all of that, but what does that mean here? What it would mean here is, so let's hold the time horizon steady. The more worried I am about outliving my money, the higher the probability of success I might target, the higher the probability of success that I want implicitly then the lower the rate of return assumption I would use because I I need to have a return low enough that I feel confident I will outperform that return number. Yeah, so what you're essentially saying is you're taking a conservative return assumption. You're assuming the market's not Mm going to return 8, 9%. You're going to assume, if you assume, if your plan makes it, assuming the market returns 3, 4% a year or whatever low number you want to come up with, that's more conservative, so that helps you. That increases the probability of success. Is that a correct statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because the, the lower the return, the easier it yeah. is to beat that return, and therefore the higher the probability of success. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. Okay, so effectively, if if you have some sort of calculator that takes into account a portfolio return, the number of years of the investment, the current portfolio value, the desired future portfolio value and when to take distributions at the beginning or the end of the year. I, you can even do a monthly, weekly, but I'm not going to, that's, that's a tougher calculation. <laughs> you, you're pretty much in, you're, you're pretty much in good shape Is that in terms of knowing what you uh-huh. need to know. Okay. So that's effectively five variables. So those five variables are in line. You're good. Should somebody break this out on an Excel sheet, use the calculator or I don't know for folks listening in, I would imagine this is a 
kind of something they could get off of many consumer-oriented websites? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, this kind of five function or five inputs, you know, four you solve for the other one. I'm sure there's a lot of free calculators that do that. That's, I, I usually just, I think most people have Excel. It's it's the PMT function in Excel. Yeah. So, you so there you go. So PMT it. function in Excel. So I wanted to put that out there. Uh, it, for people listening, they, they can kind of kick it up. But this is this this served as the main building block for you know these these yeah. sort of studies. I mean, yeah, we're done talking about safe withdrawal rates. No, no, <laughs> because there's two. Hey, what an arc. <laughs> two of those variables. <laughs> two of those variables we don't know the answers to. If we knew what the rate of return would be for the retirement, and we knew exactly how long the retirement would last. And it is a very easy calculation. And we know exactly how much we could spend every year. The, the additional nuance that leads us to have to have a whole series of podcasts about this topic is we don't know what the rate of return will be on our investment assets. And we don't know how long we will live. And therefore, we don't know how long the money needs to last. Here's a quick, so we need to think about both of those. Here's a quick question, Wayne, because I, I see portfolio return there. Uh, and it's going to come up. It's not relevant here. I, I, I know the answer, but I'd, I'd rather you kind of say it. Hey, uh, wait, what's the difference between annualized and annual? It's almost like I want to get rid of all these definitional potential questions that people may be having as they're listening. Do, do they put in an annualized rate of return or do they put in an annual rate of return? And what, what, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Well, when there's no volatility, they are the same number. But yeah, I guess we could talk about that point that that becomes relevant with volatility. The uh, kind of the simple average return you take up, if I want to know what was the average kind of stock return, I add up all the past stock returns per year, divide by the total number of years. And then I have an average, I believe that's what you meant by annual stock return. Yeah, it is. An arithmetic mean would be another name for it. Uh, now, if I want to know a different, that, that would be, so that would answer the question of over one year, in any what's given the year. most likely stock return I yeah. would experience? In any given year. So this I is change. important. I want to make sure that people get that. So your annual arithmetic mean will give you in any given year, what is, what is, a, what is a, you know, a likely return as a measure of central tendency from the average, you know, what, what, what is it? It's not talking about an investment experience over three years, over five years, which has volatility baked in. It's just in any given year, what's what's the best expectation that I can come up with? Annual mm-hmm. is a good number for that. Sorry. Wait. And then annualized or a, a compounded return or a geometric mean has a bunch of different names. That would be answering a different question, which is over multiple years, at what rate would my uh, investment account grow? And it does not grow at that arithmetic mean because of when, when there is volatility. If there is no volatility, they're, they're the same number. But if there's volatility, you deal with this issue that there's not symmetry. A downturn followed by the same upturn does not get you back to where you started. And it might help to just give a really simple example of that. Suppose I have $100 and there's a 50% drop in the market. So I'm now down to $50. Now, from $50, suppose the market gains of 50%. Am I back to where I started? No, the uh, 50% of $50 is 25, so I'm up to $75. A 50% drop in the market would have to be followed by a 100% return in the market 
to get back to where I started. That lack of symmetry causes the growth rate for money to be less than that simple average return. And the more volatile the asset, the, um, the smaller that compounded return would be relative to the simple average return. This is important. Uh, there is a very popular radio host who <laughs> said anyway. <laughs> Wait, this is I, this is my this was my master plan about ten minutes ago. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yes. I'm not going to mention him by name, but uh, <laughs> he said anyone who's worried about what we're talking about with this is just an egghead. But he talks about the stock market having a 12% return. That no, that's not a real return. That's an arithmetic mean and a simple average return, uh, including inflation. But that's not meaningful for what he was talking about, which is the growth of money over time. You don't, even if you believe the stock market has a simple average return of twelve percent, it doesn't mean your money is going to grow at twelve percent a year. Because of the volatility, the number will be less. It would be historically something more along the lines of a nine percent type of compounded return. And if you're focused on the question of how will my money grow over time, you got to look at those compounded returns that account for that volatility and the lack of symmetry between downturns and upturns. Yes, as simply put it, you're looking at a retirement horizon. It's going to include many years. Annualized return is kind of what you're looking at. But for this calculation that we've been talking about, you know, this doesn't include volatility, so maybe you would say it doesn't matter. But I, I want I want to hear from you. What what would you put in portfolio return? Would you put the annualized or the annual? Oh, for if you're just using the payment the calculator, yeah, whatever we're talking about right now, you definitely want to think about that as what's the compounded, the annualized return, because when I made the statement. With volatility and a probability of success, you can reverse engineer a fixed rate of return that would correspond to that. Because that is based on a, a long-term calculation, it would be the, the annualized or compounded return that we're talking about as that fixed rate assumption. Okay, just that's another so thing I wanted to get at. Because rates. people ask that all the time uh, in, in terms of annualized or annual. You know, it, mm -hmm. that's it. You know, if anyone's going to ask you in any given year, what's the expected market annual? What's the. Yeah, it's, it's it, like this spreadsheet is removed. There's no volatility in this simple calculation we're talking about. But to therefore be equivalent, you've got to remove the volatility out. And then that's what's leading you to that annualized or compounded return. Okay. And wait, I know I took us off a little bit, but I just wanted to bring that up because it's just a question we get a lot. And frankly, even some advisors, you know, every once in a while, will throw that at us. Like, what's the difference between annualized and an arithmetic? And you know, other than doing a double take, like, really, you're you're really asking that? <laughs> you know, it, it, it merits talking about. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you're actually doing some sort of Monte Carlo plan. Usually, the inputs are set up where you do put a simple average return plus the volatility. And then that will give you the foundation so that their simulated returns are annualized. Okay. Okay, wait. Uh, I see we're 26 minutes in. Do we have enough to to talk about the other piece, or do you want to maybe have it as a well, two-part? What do you think? 
Yeah, I think we can at least talk about longevity because we're not going to spend as much time in the series on that issue. Okay. It's, our focus is much more going to be on the volatility of returns. Okay, so but with longevity, it's what do you want to assume as a, a planning age? It's kind of the question to deal with. Well, let's unpack that then. Okay, so we talked a bit about the port. So there, remember, in the variables, there's portfolio return, number of years, which is longevity, number of years you're going to live. Uh, current portfolio value, desired future value, when to take distributions. So number of years, how do we come to that assessment in a, mm -hmm. you know, some sort of uh, scholarly way? <laughs> right. It, it's the big question. It's so this is where, as we, in this conversation, get to the 4% rule, the advice that was, that was based on was suppose you had a 65 year old couple uh, the idea was it would be unlikely that either of them would live past age 95. So let's build a plan through age 95 or for 30 years. And if the money will last for at least 30 years, we could feel reasonably comfortable. We're not going to outlive that. And so that plan would be fine. That is an out-of-date number at this point because that study the, but the cr created the 4% rule was from 1994. And people continue to live longer with each passing decade on average it's about a, a year per decade where so if <laughs> your parents were 30 when you were born you just as a simple approach you don't base your longevity on your parents precisely but add three years to that to reflect sort of these continually improving types of longevity situations that we experience but then okay so what do you do i like to explain it pretty simply that there's a calculator that retirement researcher or RISA or any of us, we don't have any affiliation. It's through the Society of Actuaries and it's longevityillustrator.org. And it's a really simple calculator. You can spend 10 minutes and get your sort of projected planning age. And we'll have it in you the show notes. Remember, let's yeah, remember yeah, to put that yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, longevityillustrator.org. But you can do it for one or two people. You just put in age, gender, smoking status, which, which really matters a lot, and then uh, an assessment of health as a poor, average, or good. And then based on that, it will give a distribution of longevity numbers for that person or for that couple. And, and so it will show for different percentiles. Now, it, with the RISA, we talked about the front-loading versus back-loading preference as one of the secondary characteristics. What Where does that mean when loader, you just... Okay, sorry. Go yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're if a front-loading preference, it's that's the idea. Of, I really want to enjoy the early years of retirement as much as possible while I'm alive and healthy. If I have to make cuts later, fine. If I have a backloading preference, it's no. I'm I'm much more worried about outliving my money, and so I do want to potentially spend less now to better protect my future self. And I think a fairly reasonable way to simply interpret that is, if you do have more of that front-loading preference. Look at the 25th percentile of results for the longevity illustrator. If you have a backloading preference, look at the 10th percentile. And to give a sense of what those numbers might be, I ran for a 65-year-old man, a 65-year-old woman, uh, and that was their birth date, July 1st, 1957. What were these kinds of numbers looking like? So if we think about a, a non-smoker in average health for men, the uh, front-loading preference would be age 91. That's the 25th percentile. 
uh, and then 96 for the 10th percentile. So 91, somewhere between 91 and 96, for instance, might be what you'd want to target. For a woman, same situation, non-smoker in average health, those ages would be 94 or to 99. Women do live longer than men. And then if you had a, a couple where they both are non-smokers in average health, and you wanted to make sure the plan would last as long as at least one of those individuals was still alive, you'd be looking at an age range between 96 and 100 to get that sort of planning age in place so that you can feel comfortable. If, if Again, it's, if I have a plan that works that long, then I should be okay. And that that's the really the, the basic idea to think about longevity. You want to have a number there. And if you want to make that even simpler, 95 to 100 might, might be a reasonable as a planning age for a lot of the people listening to this podcast. What are some of the mistakes you think people make with, with regards to this? Do they go too young or do they go too old? Not that it's a mistake, but, you know, I, what, what, are, what are some, like, you know. I, I think this is improving. I, I think the mistakes that could happen in the past is people just think about life expectancy and maybe even life expectancy at birth, which then gets them into if around age 80 or mid, lower to mid 80s, something like that. If you've lived to adulthood, the odds of continuing to survive, you, you've, you didn't die when you were young, so the, your life expectancy at birth is no longer relevant. Plus, it's not necessarily relevant anyway, because there's still like a 50% chance that you'll live beyond the average life expectancy. So you, you probably really do want to look at something longer than that. And so anyone who's saying, no, I'm never going to make it past age 80 or past age 85, those people, unless they do have some valid medically, a medical professional agreeing <laughs> reason that they do have a health issue that will make it hard to live that long. I think a lot of people might be really underestimating their potential longevity if they're thinking that something in the early to mid 80s is all they really need to plan for. I agree with you, Wade. I mean, uh, one of the reasons I'm as I was asking you that I, I think they do underestimate uh, simply because I've kicked around that site and and a caveat that it may be apparent to some, but I want to make sure it's apparent to as many people listening is, and you said it, but if you live to, it's one thing to be born and say, okay, his life expectancy is whatever, 85, just to say a number, right? But if that person gets to be 50 years old, that means that you've taken, you know, very insidious kind of illnesses off the table, you know, that may have happened to children and early deaths and things like that. You've take, taken that off the table. And so if you live to like a certain age, let's say you live to 50 and then look at your life expectancy as opposed to when you were just first, first born, I mean, it, it it, it does kind of, the news is good, you know, on many levels in terms of being able to continue to live. And so it's very different, the life expectancy of someone who's 50 versus someone who's already 80 versus someone who's already 90. And, and those, those things make a, make a difference on this longevity illustrator. And the other piece is it, it you know, Wade alluded to percentiles, looking at the 10th percentile, if you want to be uh, conservative, looking at the 25th percentile. And that means that you'll live, you'll outlive. 25th percentile, you all live 75% of the people, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and <laughs> so, you know, you, we get caught up in this Monte Carlo realm of, oh, I need a 95% probability of success. I need a, you know, whatever, 
uh, high number where I'm going to outperform 95% of all potential outcomes. Well, that's like using the fifth percentile, right? If, if you if you kind of, you know, shifted it to H, right? And so I, I think it makes a lot of sense to pay attention to the percentile of aging that you feel comfortable to live to, you know, from a from you know from your point of view of being conservative or being a little more aggressive and i think that's where wade's point about backloading and frontloading could play into that i i i think you kick around longevity illustrator.org and you know your eyes will kind of open in terms of oh wow because it's one thing to say okay average is living to 90 but again 50 percent of you will outlive that so that's a that's a big number and the last piece i would say is you know, wrap that into as well what we discussed in previous episodes about spending in retirement. You know, your spending in 90 will not be the same as your spending in 80, will not be the same as your spending in 70s, simply because, you know, you can only do so much. Well, you're jumping ahead there, Alex. Oh, we sorry, will talk sorry, about sorry. Kind of issue. sorry, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. part of this series of podcasts. So erase what you just heard. <laughs> well, no, that's a great preview. It's a little teaser for not the next episode, but as part of this series, that is one of the issues we'll we'll look at. Right. But yeah, that's pretty much the discussion around longevity. Now, for the next series of you know episodes here, we're mostly going to focus on this how this question of returns starts to impact things, and also all the different assumptions about retirement spending and, and what happens when you change those assumptions, how you can then adjust uh, what you might view as a reasonable spending number. And it's going to go well beyond that. To, to be clear about that PMT calculator we've been talking about today, not only is that a fixed rate of return as well as a, a known longevity, but it's you're going to spend the same amount every year or the same amount plus inflation every year. And that's not necessarily realistic either, especially if we're talking about the spending from the portfolio and you have other income sources as well that change over time. So that's kind of how we need to make this conversation more sophisticated. And that's what we'll do in, in subsequent episodes. So All right. Probably got enough for the episode number one here. I think so. All righty, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, journey through uh, sustainable withdrawal rates. And uh, we got one in the can, Wade. <laughs> All right. I'll see you again next week. Okay. Bye. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 